This is an ABC podcast. A relieved dad praises the people who helped rescue his young daughter after she became trapped under a fallen sand dune at Apollo Bay. So she was under for, for four or five minutes. When she came out, she was sort of semi-conscious and, uh, yeah, but just, just a freak thing and just so lucky that the people were there when they were and acted the way they did. And the doctor who discovered he had nine genetic offspring he never knew after doing an ancestry test. I've just turned 60. I had no living children, no grandchildren. And suddenly to find out that, that there were children really totally upended my whole world. I'm Adam Stephen, and this is Australia Wide, coming to you from your dingy country. We start tonight in the Northern Territory, where despite high levels of Indigenous unemployment and some of the worst crime rates in the country, the Barkley region has been overshadowed by ongoing crime in neighbouring Alice Springs. Many local leaders now believe the Barkley has been cast further to the sidelines after missing out on a cut of the $250 million in new federal funding, money that was allocated to the Territory Government to tackle alcohol-related crime and disadvantage in Central Australia. Evan Wallace reports. Cadage man and traditional owner Noel Hayes is used to seeing the Barkley miss out. They just bypass in the Barkley, Tennant Creek area and all the all our people in the Barclay and we're, and we're still suffering with alcohol too. The Alikarung resident is disappointed that the Barclay has been excluded from $250 million in new federal funding to tackle alcohol-related crime and poverty in Central Australia, issues which Noel Hayes has seen take a huge toll on his community. It's just drinking and domestic violence you know, and people spending their money on grog. You know, they haven't, at the end of the day, they got nothing for their... You know, in their house to eat, that sort of thing. It's just a you know, problem. It's been around oh, for many, many years, I suppose. The Barclay covers a massive part of the Northern Territory, with its borders stretching from the Gulf of Carpentaria to the northern edges of Central Australia. Its major population centre is Tennant Creek, five hours north of Alice Springs. It's where translator and advocate Valda Naparula Shannon calls home. Yes, it's become really bad. I just see more and more of our young people just losing hope. Don't want to be, you know, we don't, we're not good enough to be employed. Nobody wants to employ us. In 2021, over 60% of Tennant Creek's Aboriginal population was not in the workforce. It's a reality that's left the Warramungu Walpuri woman questioning why the Barclay is being left out of the $250 million in new funding for Central Australia. Nobody's coming out to speak with us, engage with us. You're kind of just left alone. And when we ask, like I said, it takes forever to get anything done. Feeling left behind, Velda has teamed up with other senior members of the Tennant Creek community to create the Apertu Grandfather and Grandmothers Group. They're most concerned about the challenges facing her grandchildren's generation. I just see them, they just wallow away in sadness, grief, you know, and go down there to the pubs and hang out with friends, having drink too too many. I said to my kids, you get involved with that sort of behaviour, you get into this trouble, it's best I stay out because I don't know what you're doing at night. You're not even practising you know, safety for yourself. 
2023 began with Alice Springs capturing the nation's attention following a spike in alcohol-related crime. In the Barclay, the statistics are even worse, with the number of alcohol-related assaults higher in Tennant Creek than Alice Springs on a per capita basis. Even without new support, this is a situation that Karen Haywood, CEO of the Papulu Apakari Aboriginal Corporation, is desperate to change. I'm going to probably be hung for this, but I don't believe the injection of money is going to help us. It's, um, we have to change attitude. We have to change massive attitude and that the kid, you know, the parents do not feel like they're in charge of their children. Karen Haywood points to implementation failures attached to the 2019 $84 million Barclay Regional Deal, a multi-government program aimed at improving livability in the Barclay, as a reason why it's a lot more than money that's needed to address disadvantage. I, we haven't made one success. We haven't achieved one real thing. It's really downheartening. We're years into this Barclay deal and we haven't done half the stuff we said we were going to do. I remember my town being so beautiful and so vibrant and everybody caring. Now people lock themselves away in their houses. I don't know where we're going. Frustration and sadness has driven the 40-year resident of Tennant Creek to seek out new solutions and turn the situation around. Her organisation has recently purchased a property in Tennant Creek to establish a town bakery. Yeah, our idea is healthy food. Um, late at night, there's nowhere, you know, there's nowhere safe unless you go to the pubs. And we're trying to get away from alcohol. We want a fam- family-friendly environment like the old days. Um, yeah, where kids, family, mothers can go and actually sit down and have a meal. At late at night, everything closes by two o'clock here unless you want to pay big money. And our mob don't have a lot of money. That was the CEO of the Papulu Apakari Aboriginal Corporation, Karen Hayward. Ending that report from Evan Wallace to the Red Heart now and a coronial inquest into the 2019 death of Walpuri teenager Kumanjai Walker is playing out in Alice Springs with one of the Northern Territory's top police officers called to give evidence. The 19-year-old died in 2019 after he was shot by Constable Zachary Rolfe during an attempted arrest at the remote community of Yendamu. Constable Rolfe was acquitted of all criminal charges related to the shooting ABC Darwin reporter Melissa McKay has been covering the hearings. Kumanjai Walker uh, was shot in 2019 in the remote community of Yundamu, uh, which is about 300 k's uh, outside of Alice Springs. Um, he was shot by Constable Zachary Rolfe, who uh, was part of a specialist team of police officers um, who had been deployed to Yundamu in part uh, to arrest Kumanjai Walker for um, previous offences, including assaulting police two days earlier um, and it's during this uh, this I guess attempted arrest um, of Mr Walker that Constable Rolfe was stabbed in the shoulder with a pair of scissors he then responded by firing his Glock uh, three times one of those uh, two uh, second two shots uh, ultimately um, were fatal to Mr Walker so he passed away uh, about an hour later at the police station in Yundamu. We have, um, this has been, you know, 2019, this has been three years coming, this coronial inquest, uh, Constable Rolfe faced a criminal trial early last year. He was charged and acquitted of murder. Um, we're now about um, three, three and a bit months into a long running coronial inquest. And what happened in court today, Melissa? So today we are hearing from the Deputy Police Commissioner Murray Smallpage. This is his third day on the stand. Um, he has been questioned uh, over a day and a half by 
um, the police force's own lawyer. He's now um, facing questions from members of Mr. from the uh, lawyers for members of Mr. Walker's family and community. Um, and he has been asked about a broad spectrum of things from the decisions that were made on the night that Kumanjai Walker died to changes that the police force uh, has made and will continue to make um, since that shooting. We know the remote community of Yendamu was rocked by the death of this 19-year-old man. Do we know how people are feeling in the community now that more than three years have passed? Yeah, look, the family and, and community of Yondamu is understandably uh, still grieving the loss of Kumanjai Walker. Um, his, his death was quite traumatic um, for the community. We've heard a lot of evidence over the last few months about um, an erosion of trust between the community and uh, the Northern Territory Police Force, something that Deputy Commissioner Smallpage has also acknowledged. He's said that there is um, you know, still a lot of work to do to be able to rebuild the level of trust. Look, this has been three years for this community. They sat through the uh, criminal trial of Constable Rolf early last year. They're now um, sitting through this um, this coronial inquest. We went out to Yundamu um, just last week before the inquest resumed and um, spoke to people out there. And people are, are, are tired. They're, they're tired of, of the constant media attention on, on this tiny little remote community. And, um, you know, they're exhausted by, by travelling to court and, uh, and coming and listening to all of this evidence, which is really quite heavy. It sounds like the focus of this coronial inquest has become a lot broader than just this single tragedy. What calls have they made about police carrying firearms in remote communities? Yeah, look, as you said, the coronial inquest is definitely looking um, a lot broader than just the shooting of Kumanjai Walker. The, the coroner is looking at um, systemic issues across um, a broad spectrum of, of things across the Northern Territory. But one of those is, um, is firearms in remote communities. We've heard calls um, from some parts of the community uh, for guns to be banned or for police to not carry their, their Glocks with them at all times. Um, this is something that, that has been, you know, it was brought up in the, in the immediate aftermath of the shooting and is something that has come up quite a bit throughout this inquest. But we have heard um, quite a bit from police witnesses and, and also from the deputy commissioner over the last couple of days. You know, police not carrying their Glocks with them is really not an option um, for the Northern Territory Police Force. And there doesn't appear to be any, uh, any plans for police to no longer carry weapons in remote communities. Thank you for bringing us the latest, Melissa McKay. Anytime, thank you. ABC Darwin reporter Melissa McKay joining us on Australia Wide. ABC Australia Wide. Country people can't be discriminated against, not in Tumut. They were homesick, you know, poor little lumps. A flood is a flood and a fire is a fire and a drought is a drought. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide on ABC Radio. It's Adam Stephen keeping you company this evening. A relieved dad has thanked members of the southwest Victorian community of Apollo Bay who helped in the rescue of his six-year-old daughter after she became trapped under a fallen sand dune. Geordie Brown is sharing this harrowing story with the ABC's Debbie Rabitsky. My kids and their mum Tiff were down the beach playing at, at, at a spot we call Mother's Corner. It's sort of the local little safe place where a lot of the kids play. And um, there'd been a bit of a storm and it undercut a bank and um, I guess my, my daughter was there and, and, and a, about a two, metre, two and a half metre high bank collapsed and fell on her and buried her. But oh, the scary is. part was, was no one saw it. So out of the corner of Tiff's eye, she just saw some sand shift. 
state. She did a quick head check, realised Sammy wasn't there. And luckily, like, one of her, her teachers from school was there and just snapped into action. She got Tiff running around calling because Sammy would respond to her voice. Um, got a team digging in a spot where she possibly could have been. Like, no one saw her go under. It was just an option that she could have been under the sand there. So she was under for, for four or five minutes. When she came out, she was sort of semi-conscious and, uh, yeah, but just, just a freak thing and just so lucky that the people were there when they were and acted the way they did. So how did they know where to start digging in the first place? Like I said, Tiff had sort of seen something happen, you know, but this teacher, Jade Kent, I don't know, she just she just felt that Sammy was there, you know. Her intuition as a mother, like, she just sort of felt that she she could feel feel Sammy there under the sand, you know, so that's where they sort of dug and, uh, yeah, there's, there's about half a dozen people involved in digging her out. Yeah, these people are all responsible for, for my daughter being here now. She wasn't in a good way, like, um, obviously she hadn't been able to breathe for quite a long time mm. um, and the sheer weight of the sand, because she's quite a petite little girl, so there was a lot of, um, you know, they're worrying about her spine because she kind of got crushed and then there was some ongoing things that we had to watch with, with her lungs because of the, the, the weight of it all. But I'm just blown away with how quickly she's bounced back. You know, she's an incredible little little girl and, yeah, very strong. Yeah, a relieved father for sure. That was Apollo Bay's Geordie Brown speaking with Debbie Rabitsky. ABC Australia Wide. The right of people conceived through sperm donation to learn the identity of their donor has taken a leap forward in Queensland after the state government accepted a suite of recommendations from an inquiry on the issue. It's all about allowing donor offspring to learn their genetic history and better deal with any potential hereditary health concerns that may entail. But that means sperm donors' long-held right to anonymity is on the way out. Chris Calcino has this report. Dr Darren Russell is a prominent health professional in Cairns in far north Queensland and he's also the father to nine children who were conceived through sperm donations he made in the early 1980s. Well in 2018 I did my DNA testing online and in 2021 in June I got an email from the uh, DNA site to inform me that there was a 50% DNA match so the person was either my father or my son and that was a huge shock to me because I didn't think I had any living children at all. So I contacted the person and he asked if I'd ever donated sperm and I told him yes I had back in 1982-83 and he said well in that case you're my father I've been looking for you. Darren and his partner lost their son Bryn to suicide in 2003 and opted not to have any more kids. But this ancestry test triggered a chain of events which ultimately resulted in the discovery that he had nine other adult genetic children scattered across the country. My wife and I have met eight of them so far and um, we've met quite a few of the grandkids and we're going to keep meeting them as time goes on and and develop relationships in some form or another. So it's been a a huge shock and a, a change to my life, that's for sure. The Queensland Government has now given in-principle support to a range of recommendations arising from an inquiry into the rights of donor-conceived people. Under the proposed legislative changes, offspring would have access to the identity of their genetic siblings when they turn 18, as well as the person who donated the sperm, egg or embryo used in their conception, so they can learn their genetic history and deal with any potential hereditary health concerns that may entail. 
But if Darren casts his mind back to the early 1980s when he was making those donations, he was guaranteed anonymity. Don't these changes fly in the face of that promise? We can't hide behind the idea that anonymity was promised 40, 50 years ago because it can't be promised now. You know, we live in a totally different world. And having said that, this idea that children are suddenly going to turn up on the doorstep of of people who donated a long time ago is, is really quite wrong. I mean, the world does still need sperm donors, but maybe this is a bit unkind, but if those sperm donors aren't interested in their offspring being able to access any of their history or to make contact in the future, they're probably not the sort of sperm donors who should be donating, in all honesty. Guy Hampshire is one of Darren Russell's donor offspring. He's an intensive care paramedic in Victoria, and until he got the results of an ancestry test in May last year... He had no idea that the man he called dad was not his genetic father. I received a letter in the post of registered mail from VADA uh, informing me there was some information about my birth to know and so I contacted them and and went from sort of being an only child uh, to being the the second eldest of ten and having a very different paternity than what I had been told or expected. That discovery was the biggest shock of Guy's life but it was bittersweet. The man who I thought was my father passed away from a cancer a couple of years ago, which I um, assisted him through. So it's sort of not the inability to have that conversation with him about it uh, becomes very difficult. On the flip side, though, I I get to sort of meet some people who actually look like me and, uh, yeah, get to find out my my similarities and my differences from the people I'm related to uh, by blood. Guy says he's cautiously optimistic that the Queensland government will implement the changes without letting bureaucracy get in the way. It's been incredibly valuable for me to actually get to know uh, Darren, but also to get to know many of my siblings who um, we just share a lot of pretty amazing traits, a lot of similarities, you know, a lot of chance opportunities where we could have met. Heart disease is a massive epigenetic component and just being able to know what risk factors there are. You know, we look at for, um, there's a lot of talk now in medicine about BRCA1, BRCA2 and cancer-related genes. And I guess if you know that those are already something that might be in your system, you can screen and look for it earlier and make uh, really important medical decisions that might improve your quality of life and, and lengthen your life. Look, I think it's really important that your desire to have a child is not outweighed by the child's desire to know with their genetic makeup and to know where they're from, uh, sort of to know their tribe. So I think for anyone who's considering going down that path, it's probably worth contacting Donor Conceived Australia and um, just seeing the effects that this has had on people's lives at finding out late. Um, you know, the data now suggests the earlier people find out, the better they are psychologically from it. Um, but I think it is a really important discussion to have that it's not just about creating a child, but it's also about creating it someone who has the need to see you know, a counterpoint in another person to see themselves as part of a whole human. That was Victorian man Guy Hampshire, ending that report from Australia Wide's Chris Calcino. ABC Australia Wide. The person who doesn't support a cull, they've probably been here 10 years, whereas someone who's been here for 40 will actually tell you the population of saltwater crocs we have in our river, ridiculous. On ABC Radio. The great reverse migration trend in this country seems to be continuing. Prior to the pandemic, Australian cities were booming and, well, country towns we know, They were struggling. But since the COVID lockdowns, regional centres have been roping in city slickers and interstate migrants in numbers that would have once seemed unimaginable. The latest Regional Movers Index has signalled out Port Pirie in South Australia for special attention. The small city saw a 347% jump 
in internal migration last year. Not that that was at all a surprise to local real estate agent Brody Labus. It's been the best year that we've ever had, to be perfectly straight. Um, and that is just due to, obviously, um, yeah, people moving to the town for either employment um, or, as I said, even even investment purposes. Um, we've seen a, a massive increase um, in the medium rental market as well as the sale market. Um, so, yeah, it all seems to be moving along well. The people that have been buying properties that are moving from other parts of Australia, have they been saying why they're moving, Brody? Are you getting an idea for, for what the draw has been to Port Pirie over the past 18 months or so? Well, yeah, look, affordability, uh, that comes into it. Um, so basically, uh, we had to have a medium sale price of around $250,000, and that gets you quite a nice three-bedroom solid home in a reasonable area of Port Pirie. So um, we're having retirees that may come through and set up a base and just have, have Pirie as their base. They've got a decent shed to store the van, and off they go around Australia for holidaying for months and months, and then they'll head back. And the, the other thing is we've also got the facilities, a really good hospital facilities, um, and also we're only two hours away from uh, the major city being Adelaide. And, yeah, again, we've got a really good generation of people coming through, first-home buyers that are building and want to set up their family in the area because they know... Again, that it's affordable. We're not too far to get to work every day. Brody, has Piri copped the bad rap over the years? Do you feel like the town might have struggled to attract people towards it based on the fact that its largest employer has been a, a lead smelter? That's, has that been a challenge, do yeah, you reckon, oh, over look, time? There has been a huge challenge over time. I mean, many, many phone calls I receive from investors, they generally pick up and will sort of make mention about the smelter and, and obviously high lead levels. And there's been many challenging times and it's very frustrating for the public people because we've been around for a long time. And um, and obviously sometimes, the, uh, whether it's the media or the figures that come through um, about high lead, uh, that may... Uh, impact what people's thoughts are. But if you're local, it's not something that is a, a large concern for us. Yeah, Yeah. well, being in Mount Isa last week, which is another town that was built off the back of a significant lead smelter, it's it seems to be the case that a lot of locals don't tend to worry themselves or concern themselves as much with the, yeah. the lead recordings as people from outside. As an outsider, I was asking people about it. People were like, look, I honestly don't, don't think about it much. If I have to take a lead level test for work, I will, but... Aside from that, that's the only time I ever think about it. Obviously, that's not everyone in the community, but do you feel like that's sort of a bigger concern of people outside than it actually is from people living around Port Pirie day to day? Yeah, the smelter does concern external people um, just due to the fact that the uh, you Google um, Port Pirie and it'll say largest um, lead smelter with some children with high lead, mainly the people that are working in the actual plants themselves. Uh, as long as they're getting tested and they come home and they're doing the right things by... Uh, obviously, re reasonable hygiene. Well, uh, yeah, we find that it doesn't affect a great deal of people around the area. There's been a Facebook group with a name not fit for radio that's had a lot of fun poking fun at Port Pirie over the years. And I know, Brody, the locals haven't necessarily loved being high on the list of unlikable places, according to this Facebook group. But based on what we've seen here with so many people moving to your town over the last year or so, do you think they might need to reassess where they place Port Pirie on their list? Most certainly, I think these guys need to reassess and, uh, yeah, I'd be more than happy for them to visit Port Pirie and I can show them around and have a fair old chat 
and uh, I think they'd probably find that uh, it's not not as bad as what they think it is. I'm not sure where they got their thoughts from um, initially. <laughs> Obviously, Perry being the worst place in Australia or South Australia, but uh, I'd love to meet them and have a bit of a chat and, and show them all the features that Perry has to offer. And uh, again, we're, we've got the water right next to us for magnificent fishing. We've got the hills, the Flinders Ranges for camping and bike riding and whatever else you could ask for. So. Tell them to come and have a chat and I'll, uh, we might have to put them back in their place. That was Port Piri real estate agent Brodie Lavis. And that's Australia Wide for this Wednesday. Remember, you can podcast the show or listen back to the program through the ABC Listen app or by visiting the Australia Wide website. Just search ABC Australia Wide. My name's Adam Stephen, filling in for Sinead Mangan this week and I'll be back with another episode tomorrow. I'll catch you then. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.